Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Thank you for joining us once again as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. And as we have gone through all of the steps so far, we've covered a lot of ground in laying this foundation for preparing to actually dig into a very complicated and complex book of Scripture that has been so often misunderstood, misused, and abused over the course of church history. And so in our last session, we finished reviewing some of the basic skills of properly interpreting the Bible and especially with apocalyptic literature by reviewing the hermeneutical principle of asking the question, who is you? Whenever we read any book, but especially when we read and study the Bible, we should always ask the question, who is you when we read a passage? Who is the you that that passage is being written to? Because that is a very vital component of helping us to understand what's going on in the scripture when we read it. And so the use of that tool is an important part of really understanding the you know, proper context of Scripture when we read the Bible. And we looked at the Olivet Discourse and how Jesus was speaking specifically to the disciples. And so many times the uh, Olivet Discourse has been taken out of its context and shoehorned into a modern perspective. Now, one of the things we have to be careful of, always being careful of, not to twist the Bible to fit our beliefs. We twist our beliefs to fit the Bible. When we read our preconceived notions and beliefs into the scripture, this is called eisegesis. Eisegesis is where I've been taught a certain perspective or view or teaching about the Bible. And so when I read it, that's what I automatically see. But we have to work to be objective as much as we possibly can and work to exegete the Bible. And as we do that, we will be able to say, okay, this is what the original writers of Scripture intended when they looked at, you know, when they wrote this down, when God revealed this through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is something that is really vital to understanding. And so as we looked at the Olivet Discourse, we saw that Jesus was helping his followers understand what's going to happen in their lifetime. 
This was not something that was going to happen in the far distant future. We know because when we use the Who Is You tool to make sure we properly understand the scripture, we are able to see that Jesus was telling his disciples what they would see in their timeline. And so when we left off, we were in Matthew chapter 24, and if you want to follow along with me, you can turn your Bible there. And the context of this passage, as we saw in our last episode, was that Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jerusalem. You know, Jesus was going, uh, this was during, you know, the Passover celebration, and so there were people, you know, as the, the days leading up to Passover, they were all coming to Jerusalem, and, and this was a big deal, it was a, you know, in uh, all of the festivals in the Jewish culture. Passover is one of, if not the most important, perhaps the largest of them in, in many families who could not afford to come to all seven of the major festivals throughout the year, they would all make sure if they could, they came to Passover because this was when they would celebrate God's faithfulness and his redemption. And so when Jesus was in the temple teaching day in and day out, the crowds would come and hear him. And this was part of their daily routine. They would come into the temple, Jesus would teach, and in the evenings they would sleep in the Mount of Olives. And so as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, one day. I can only imagine the sun is setting and they are, you know, it's evening time and the, the temple buildings are probably glowing in the sunset. And as the, the disciples are marveling over these buildings and Herod's great temple complex he had built in almost 50 years of work to, to create, Jesus says, do you see these buildings? One day one stone won't be on top of another. And that is what prompts the question that most people take out of context when the disciples say, Jesus, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the world? And Jesus answers their question by telling them all these things they would see. And so in verse 30, we'll pick up from where we left off last time. And so it says this, starting in verse 30, Jesus is speaking to them and he says, And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of the trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now, when we look at this passage, this is something that's really important to put it in context. If I just pull these two verses out of, uh, of the scriptures, I can make them say what I want them to say. I can make them speak about the end times and the final judgment when God is going to resurrect the dead and bring you know everyone up in the rapture and bring them before his great white throne judgment and you know judge them according to their works. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a specific time of judgment that Jesus is coming to bring on the people of Israel and his great enemy, the Romans. How do we know that? It tells us in the next couple of passages, verses. But before we get there, we have to make sure we understand some apocalyptic imagery that when Jesus says, you know, he's coming on the clouds with glory, this is not a, a passage that is actually going to see Jesus surfing in the sky, riding a cloud. Man, how cool is that? That's not what he's talking about. This is apocalyptic imagery 
used, you know, starting with the book of Daniel, but throughout the prophets, where when God comes on the clouds, it is an apocalyptic image of judgment. It is not saying that we're going to look into the skies and we're literally going to see Jesus. This is a symbol. Jesus is a using Jesus is using apocalyptic literature as a as imagery, right? A, a, he's referring to that style of literature to give this image, and that sounds really weird. But we do that in English all the time. We do not only write in poetry. We not only write in informative or only in narrative or only in persuasive. We mix our conversational elements with figurative language to make our conversation brighter and more complex and colorful. So we switch between genres when we talk all the time, and we make references to things that some people may not even know of, and we have to explain it to them, especially if they're not American. You know, as I look at some of our holidays and recognize that some of our holidays are only American holidays, the Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, those two holidays, Columbus Day, all of these, they don't have to celebrate Fourth of July in Amsterdam or in China, right? All of these other countries, that's not their Independence Day, and we don't celebrate their holidays. So, for example, when there was a national holiday in Great Britain, when the king was being coronated officially as the king of England. Of England over the United Kingdom. America didn't take a federal holiday for that. Yeah, the U.S. didn't. It's not our holiday. So you have to understand the references. And Jesus is making this specific reference mid-conversation because that's a normal thing that people do. And he tells them that every you know body will see this happen. That they you know, all there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. Now, if we take that literally. Then we're waiting on a time when every single person on the planet will mourn. You know, but if that's the case, if Jesus is returning, then I'm not going to mourn over that. I'm going to be excited because I'm going to see Jesus put everything back to the way it was supposed to be. So this is not meant to be taken literally. We know that because that would completely conflict with other parts of Scripture. What does this mean? This is a hyperbole. This is an exaggeration that Jesus is using. So coming on the clouds, Jesus' disciples would have understood Jesus is going to come back in judgment. This is why there won't be one stone left on top of another in the Temple Mount. This is why in the earlier portions of this Olivet Discourse, Jesus said how terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing women, mothers, during this time. He tells them when this happens, you need to run Get out of Jerusalem, flee Judea, head for the mountains, head for the hills, because it's going to be terrible. This is something they were going to see. And so in verse 32, Jesus reminds them and reaffirms that this is something for them, not for you and me thousands of years later. Look at verse 32. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's saying, when you see all these things, when you see that, he says, you can know his return is very near right at the door. And then Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Now, when some people read this, and this is how I was taught, they're forced to twist these passages to say that, oh, this you is not the disciples. This is something that's going to happen thousands of years later, and that this generation is not, you know, 
the, the disciples generation is talking about the, the human race right the, the human race won't pass away until all these things take place but when we read this in context we clearly see the you that Jesus is referring to is the disciples it's their generation not my generation you know, I was born in the 80s, I was a teenager in the 90s, I was an adult in the 2000s. That's my generation, Generation X, Millennial, whatever phrase you want to use. That's not the baby boomer generation. That's not the greatest generation. That's, you know, that's my generation. And the, if I read this the way Jesus says it, he's telling his disciples, this generation is not going to pass away until they see all these things. And so Jesus lets them know. Now, why does this matter? Because this shows us how to properly interpret scripture by asking the who is you, putting it in the culture of the day, and using symbolism in its proper way. That coming on the clouds is not Jesus surfing on a cloud and in this hyperbole of everybody across the planet will mourn this happening. No, we have to put it in context and look at the figurative language, look at the symbolism and the references. So with that in mind, we see that the idea of asking the who is you question, the asking of, you know, what would the references be to a person who read this? So when we look at when Jesus is saying, you, you see me coming on the clouds, this is a reference to what they would have understood in the you know, what we call the Old Testament, when they look at their, the, what they would have read and understood, Jesus would have understood that they would have got this symbolism, right? And so when we look at, um, you know, the, the Jesus, you know, looking at all of this, they would have understood the symbolism of to come on the clouds means to come in judgment. Why? Because this is something they would have known. God's presence was so often symbolized as clouds. I mean, think about the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that the Israelites, as they wandered in the wilderness, saw. That these are these are commonplace symbols for God and His judgment. We see this when we have you know the, the prophetic passages where you know Jesus is is referencing this, and we, we these prophetic passages where the prophet said God was going to bring all of this judgment on them. And so as we look at all of this in, in Scripture, we understand that this is something we've got to look at in context. We can't just take it willy-nilly. So now, as we get ready to look at the book of, of Revelation, we have to understand one last piece. And I know we keep saying, oh, we're going to get into it. Oh, we're going to get into it. One last thing, and this is really the last thing, is we need to understand that the book of Revelation follows a pattern. And the pattern helps us understand what John is doing. John organizes all of this. Now, whether you believe all of this was a prophetic vision from start to finish or whether John gets a message and he covers it in symbolism, it doesn't matter because the answer is still the same. But this is the last little organizational part before we can open the scripture and read it together in Revelation 1, is we need to understand something called a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure is a type of writing style that Jewish cultures use to organize specifically poetic writing. And what it does is it creates a slanted parallel where we see, um, you know, kind of it starts with a, a principle. It gives something in the next step to help 
build on it and gives a climactic statement, and then it builds back to the original point. Uh, a, a short but simple example of this is in the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. We also call her the Samaritan woman. And in verse 23 of John chapter 4, Jesus tells her this, But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. How does that follow a chiastic structure? 23a says, The time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's the anchor point. Then 23b gives the next step up on if we're making like a pyramid shape, right? We're climbing up the mountain. The next step up of the pyramid is the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. So we started with worshiping in spirit and truth. God is looking for those to worship him that way. The top of the pyramid, the top of the chiastic structure is, is 24a, where it says, for God is spirit. That's the, the, the capstone of the chiastic structure for this passage. 24b is so those who worship him. And then once again, we hit the point of must worship in spirit and truth. And if you were to outline that, it would make a pyramid or a mountain shape. And this is important that the, the book of Revelation will follow a chiastic structure with a, a climactic culminating moment at the top of the pyramid, and then it will bring it back down to the original point. The very first opening part is called the prologue. This is the introduction where John comes on the scene and has his interaction with a heavenly messenger, goes to the, the throne room of God and sees events in heaven that are going to foreshadow events that will happen on the earth. That's the prologue. Then once John is in, the throne room and in the spirit in heaven, he gets to see three sets of seven, seven churches, seven seals, and seven trumpets. And then after that third set of seven, Jesus ultimately defeats Satan. That's the pinnacle of the book of Revelation is where Jesus ultimately defeats the enemy and wins the victory for his people. Then as we go down the pyramid, we see the seven bowls, then the millennial reign, which parallels the, you know, the, the previous reign of the people of Israel. Now the millennial reign is the reign of God's people in the new age. And then instead of the seven churches, we see the parallel coming down the mountain of the new Jerusalem. And the final parallel, instead of the prologue, its parallel is the epilogue or the closing of the book of Revelation. And this structure will help us see how the messages will unfold to give us the truth that we can take away and apply to our life. And so understanding this model helps us recognize the structure and the setup so that we can understand the ultimate point. So even if you disagree with me, if you say, James, I don't believe in this partial preterism stuff. I think it's all going to happen in the future. We're waiting on the mark of the beast. After all, isn't that when we get our, our microchips implanted in our in our foreheads or in our hands so that we can, you know, be completely tracked and subjugated to the government that, you know, and follow the Antichrist? I, hey, if that's what you want to go with and you think I'm wrong, ultimately, what we can all agree on is that Jesus wins. Jesus defeats the enemy. And we get to be with God. And that's the important part. So as we get ready to go, let's get your Bibles out. Let's start with 
the first part of the book of Revelation, which is the prologue. The prologue. Now, every apocalypse, like we said, starts with the messenger receiving the message. And this is where we find John, and he receives his message. So let's start in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this. This is a revelation. Remember the Greek word apocalypse, right? An unveiling, a revealing. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events must soon, that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is the report of the word, or this is his report of the word that God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listens to its message and obeys what it says, for the time is near. Now, once again, you'll get tired of hearing me say this, but if we were a reader in the first century who received this letter from John, we were in one of the churches of Ephesus that he oversaw, and we get this letter from him, what would you think about that passage? The events that must soon take place. The time is near. They would have understood these were things that they would have expected and John would have taught them were going to happen soon. Not 2,000 years later, not 5,000 years later, soon. And so from the outset, we already see that the book of Revelation is going to follow the prescribed pattern of an apocalypse. It starts with the messenger receiving the message. This is what you know. John is telling his readers, I received this message from God through a messenger, and now I'm giving it to you. And you need to follow it, and it will bless you if you obey it, because the time is near. And so we must pay attention to this. Now, the word, like we already talked about, the word soon here is the Greek word tacos. You know, and it's where we get this idea of, of soon immediacy. This is not soon as in the grand scheme of things. If, you know, if that was the case, it would be a different context. You know, when Daniel received his message, God told him to seal it up and, and, and preserve it for the future because it wasn't going to happen in his time. You know, that vision of, of, the, of the statue with the different materials and the vision of the beasts that we're going to talk about eventually as we go through the book of Revelation, that Daniel didn't have to tell anybody that stuff because God said this is going to happen in the future. But John is commanded to tell the church because these things are going to happen soon. And, and the Greek words clearly show us that this is near. I mean, think here uh, in verse 2, the word is is. Not in verse one is the word tacos, and in the word two is the word ingis. And this is the same one that Jesus used when he talked in the Olivet Discourse, and he said, Learn a lesson from the parable of the fig tree. Whenever its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. That word near is the Greek word ingis, and that's the same one John uses. This is not near as in 2,000 years later, because no farmer wants to wait 2,000 years to get figs. This is going to happen soon. Okay, beat this horse to death. Let's keep going. And so as we go through, you know, this is John is trying to implore his readers to say, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, who listen to its message and obey what it says. This is a throwback, a reference to what Jesus would say whenever he would teach, you know, he would 
often say this, and in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5, you know the familiar passage, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Listen and understand. There is a hearing, and then there is a paying attention to, a putting into action. That's why the Bible says don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. What's the blessing? Well, in the immediate context, the blessing would be, hey, if you understand that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and and the temple's going to be torn apart, then you need to get out of there. When you see these signs, you'll be blessed because your life will be saved. I can only imagine how bittersweet it was for the Jews and the, and the Christians who listened to the apostles when they said, hey, Jesus said this was going to happen. We see the signs. Get out of Jerusalem. And after the siege of Jerusalem happened and the destruction happened and the hundreds of thousands of people were killed by the Romans, I can only imagine how blessed they felt that they did not just listen, but they also obeyed. They weren't just hearers of the word, they were doers as well. And so as we look at this, we need to understand that this was something they would have put into practice. They were blessed for it. John goes on in verse 4 and says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ he is the faithful witness to these things the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world two verses a lot of substance so let's look at this together first we see that John is saying this is a letter from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia these would have been like we said before real people in real church communities in real places in modern day Turkey in what was called Asia at the time these these seven churches that John oversaw they would have logically seen this and said oh this message is for us but the reality is the church at this point understood how letters from the apostles worked that yes there were specific things that were implicitly or explicitly excuse me told to these church communities but the implication was that the whole church could value these things and learn from these things too they became what was known as circulars okay circular letters that were sent to circulate throughout the whole empire and so the book of romans even though it was written 2000 years ago now we still apply it in our lives we still learn from it And so that's what is going to happen to all of the church, that even though John is writing to seven specific churches, he's also understanding that everyone is going to read this. Now, seven is the first number we need to pay attention to. Seven is the number that is a reference to totality. Another way to think of of the number seven is 100% completion totalness, wholeness, perfection. In the Jewish culture, anytime the number seven came up, it meant to refer to wholeness, perfection, totality, 100%. So even though it's being written to seven specific church communities, that number seven would have been a a understanding that this referred to the whole church, the complete and 100% of the church. But then John goes on to say that this is also you know the message saying grace and peace to you from the one who is who always was and who is still to come that's an obvious reference to jesus you know but 
not just Jesus, because in verse 5 it says, and from Jesus. So this is one of the cool parts of Scripture where we see the Trinity described. Because Jesus is mentioned in verse 5, so who was the one who always was? That is God. And then it says, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. This is talking about God. But Jesus is also God. It says, and from Jesus Christ. We're going to see Jesus in in the next upcoming passages refer to himself with these same titles. John wants us to clearly see that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three parts of the same God. And so as we go through this, we also see how it calls the sevenfold or seven-part Spirit of God, depending on your translation. This doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has seven pieces. This means to say that God has, you know, the Holy Spirit is seven, meaning that he's whole and complete and perfect, the perfect spirit of God, 100% of God's spirit. And so as we look at this, we continue to see that number seven refer to wholeness and completion and perfection. Verse 5b goes on to say, All glory to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. Who is that? (laughs) That's Jesus. John wants us to understand that Jesus is the one that freed us. Jesus is the one that paid the price on the cross. And there are people who, you know, don't ascribe to the sacrificial theory of atonement, but John sure did. If we believe this is God's word, we need to understand that God's word is telling us that Jesus set us free by shedding his blood. And in verse 6 it says this, He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Jesus did not just set us free to go to church. Jesus set us free to do his work. I love that he says he has made us a kingdom of priests. This means that we all live together. We're all one nation. A kingdom refers to a, a, a community of people, but not just of one, you know, a little bit of everything. We're all priests. And what do we have this habit of doing? We have this habit of, of pawning off the work of the kingdom on pastors and ministers, chaplains, whatever title you want to give them. And I thank God for the gifting of the, the, the office, the, the training and the calling to be a pastor and a minister. But if, based off what John is saying, everyone is a priest in God's kingdom. We are, if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of the kingdom. And so that makes you a priest of God. And we are responsible for bringing his kingdom. And then John says, all glory and power to him forever and ever. As we close this section, what a beautiful way to end. All glory to God for what he's doing and what he has created us to be. Amen. Until next time, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.